A few days ago I was driving through the snowbanked streets of Cambridgeport. An older African-American pedestrian seemed poised to cross in front of me. So I braked and waved him by, but he smiled and waved me by. I smiled back and waved him by. And he smiled more broadly and waved me by again. This Alphonse and Gaston routine might have gone on for some time. I feel that way sometimes myself. So anyway, I smiled back and waved him by. He smiled more broadly and waved me by again. And this uh, routine might have gone on for some time, but then he pantomimed that he wasn't actually intending to cross the street at all, <laughs> but rather to turn at the corner. We both smiled as I accelerated past him. It was a pleasant, ordinary interaction between two strangers. But as I drove away, tears filled my eyes. Not because I'd had a pleasant, ordinary interaction with an African-American. Pleasant and ordinary interactions across race, thank God, happen all the time, despite all our history of pain and conflict. I cried because I wondered if our interaction might have been a little lighter, a little friendlier, a little more trusting, because we both knew that President-elect Barack Obama would soon be installed in the White House. And since Obama carried the People's Republic of Cambridge with 90% of the vote, <laughs> we both knew we'd both very likely helped put him there. Ever since November 4, for me, just walking around the city has been an exercise in uplift. In the faces of so many different races and backgrounds, in the cacophony of so many different languages, instead of the ghosts of oppressions past or the victims of oppressions present, I thought I beheld a host of angels heralding hope and possibility. And wasn't last Tuesday amazing? President Barack Hussein Obama. I shall not join the applause with an eye to our tax status. But I will just say again, President Barack Hussein Obama. First Lady Michelle Obama, first daughters Malia and Sasha, the first family, the first African-American president of the United States of America taking the oath of office in the brilliant sunlight of a brighter day. Even Chief Justice Roberts' fugitive adverb <laughs> could not dim the moment. Amazing. But the younger you are, the less amazing it is. When you've grown up with a national holiday honoring Martin Luther King Jr., with Rihanna and Chris Brown and Lil Wayne on top of the charts, with Will Smith, Denzel Washington, and Halle Berry on top of the box office, with Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and Venus and Serena Williams on top of their game. 
course, Obama is not our first African-American president. James Earl Jones, Morgan Freeman, got there first in the movies. Dennis Haysbert is presidential every week on television. Hell, in the movies, Morgan Freeman wasn't just a president. He was God Almighty. So for some of us, electing a real-life African-American president may have been an anti-climax. But not for the rest of us. Not for those who remember Martin and Malcolm and Rosa and Fannie Lou. The shame of segregation and the birth pains of desegregation. We recall too well the distance we have traveled as a nation. Every agonizing step. Every bloody footprint. But as Bob Dylan promised nearly half a century ago, the times, they are a changing. While honoring the past, we must embrace the present and shape the future. Some argue it's past time to abandon the racial lens that has colored our perspective for too long. Obama's election, they say, signals a post-racial society. Well, as Cornell West points out, people of color have voted for white candidates for years. Not because they were post-racial, but because they saw which candidate could best advance their interests. Many white voters favored Obama in spite of his race, not because of it. Others refused to vote for an, Afro an African American at all, even as they acknowledged he would represent them better than his opponent. And even those white voters who favored Obama because of his race did so because they recognized the terrible toll racism has taken and continues to take on our country. Race played a constant and pervasive role in this election, at once boosting Obama's candidacy and making it more difficult. That is not a portrait of a post-racial society, but a society fraught with racial issues in an era of transition. There's a time-honored American tradition of premature obsolescence of social change movements. No sooner is a demand for justice broadly accepted as legitimate than it is dismissed as anachronistic, even though only a fractions of its goals have been realized. It happened to the labor movement after World War II and to both the women's and environmental movements in the 1970s. In recent years, we've heard the peculiar argument that the gay rights movement is at once abhorrent and unnecessary. The former claim disproving the latter. It would be tragic if the election of Barack Obama, a man of dazzling intelligence, soaring oratory, and preternatural calm, were taken to mean that the stain of American racism had miraculously been wiped clean. As if the stardom of Sidney Poitier in the 1960s had instantly cured Hollywood of racial discrimination. Come back to me when a politician of color 
of the modest gifts and immodest gaffes of a George W. Bush is elected to two terms as president. And we'll talk about post-racial then. Just last weekend, on the eve of Martin Luther King Day, a Harvard-educated white male friend of mine insisted to me over breakfast that race was passé and that I should be focused on class. I responded that both are crucial. Class demands our attention and commitment, and race remains a profound challenge. A few minutes later, my friend picked up the Boston Globe and noticed the front page headline, Church Arson Tied to Racism. The story told how three white men in Springfield, Massachusetts, infuriated by Obama's victory, had burnt to the ground the partially built church of a black congregation on election night. Maybe you have a point, my friend, aloud. In the same America that just elected Barack Obama, people of color lag behind whites in every indicator of survival and success. The poverty rate for African Americans and Latinos is two and a half times that for whites. One third of young black men are either in jail, on parole, or on probation. Here in Massachusetts, blacks and Latinos get twice as many traffic tickets as their share of the population. Once ticketed, they are 50% more likely than whites to have their cars searched. But the search is less likely to turn up drugs. Ask the motorist pulled over for driving while black about a post-racial society. At a staff meeting here, after the service of remembrance a couple of weeks back, the staff and I talked about how to deal with the smoke from the ritual burning of messages to the dead. Many of you told me how moved you were by that ceremony, during which I noticed many of you tearing up, but the truth is I wasn't sure if the tears were from emotion or irritation from the smoke. So I asked our sexton, Roland Ellies, if next time he'd be willing to remove the cauldron while it was smoldering, take it outside to the burial ground, and let the fire burn itself out. Roland looked at me and said, let me get this straight. A black man in the burial ground with fire. You're going to get me arrested. Ask Roland about a post-racial society. The election of Barack Obama is a watershed, not a revolution. Racism persists, and the struggle for justice continues. As Unitarian Universalists, we must be part of that struggle, demanding equal opportunity, challenging privilege and oppression wherever we encounter it, and building the beloved community in our own congregations. Last Tuesday, the Standing Committee voted to recommend hiring a three-quarter time director of religious education, part-time youth staff, and a full-time assistant minister, whom the congregation may later call as a settled associate. The plan is to seek a minister of color to lead and encourage racial and cultural diversity in our congregation, inspire and coordinate congregational justice-making in the broader community, strengthen bonds of community within the congregation, and also handle other ministerial tasks like preaching, pastoral care, and adult spiritual education. 
the congregation will vote on this recommendation two weeks from today. This proposal moves us closer to fulfilling the long-deferred dream of First Parish in Cambridge as a truly multiracial, multicultural, justice-making congregation. Hiring a minister of color is not the end of that task. It is barely a beginning. But it will be a crucial and historic step after 373 years of all-white ministry at First Parish to declare a new intention, a new self-understanding, a new role in the community, a new invitation to people of all colors and classes and abilities to worship here. This undertaking cannot be delegated to one minister. It will be up to all of us. But the work of becoming a multiracial and multicultural congregation will be made vastly easier by the presence and leadership of a minister of color. Indeed, it's hard for me to imagine this work succeeding otherwise. Meanwhile, two ministers from the UUAs, that's the Unitarian Universalist Association's Just Change Consultancy, just with two U's, of course, Just Change Consultancy, Two ministers, one black and one white, will visit us next month to help us get underway. Some ask if many people of color will actually want to worship here. Don't they have their own churches already? Some do. Our intention is not to poach worshipers from other churches, but to attract the much larger numbers of the unchurched. African-American churches, for example, are often doctrinally conservative, discouraging skeptics and free thinkers, and hostile to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, worshipers whom Unitarian Universalism welcomes and embraces. Last fall, I told you about John Carvana, my African-American best friend in third grade, whom I recently located again. He's now a conservative Republican, in California. We got to talking about our spiritual journeys and I pointed him in the direction of his neighborhood Unitarian Universalist Church. John gave me permission to share with you some of his emails. October 20th. My wife Joanne and I went to a local non-denominational church this past weekend. Like you, I became disenchanted with the traditional church some time back the traditional version of God as this guy sitting in the sky looking down on all of us with a thunderbolt in hand was a bit too much. Anyway, the first thing we find out is that that church opposes gay marriage and is urging people to vote to have the law repealed this November. Joanne and I find this hard to accept in view of the fact that we are an interracial couple and years ago it was against the law in many states for us to marry. More important, we believe that God wants us to love one another period. If we choose to love someone of the same sex or gender, the God we believe in, who is a God of understanding, love, and mercy, would not condemn us to burn in hell if there is such a place. So we recognized that we did not belong and left. October 26, just after attending Unitarian Universalist worship, Fred, I spent the past 90 minutes experiencing something quite remarkable. I was in a place where so much love and fellowship filled the room 
that it was hard for me to remain contained. I found myself among friends whom I was meeting for the first time. I had to fight back tears that weren't from sadness. It was more like my soul just opening up. I heard, I felt, I knew I was home. December 9. Joanne and I have been attending church over the last five weeks and we're ready to become members. I cannot tell you how wonderful it is and how much I look forward to being there each week. Already I want to do more. During a recent conversation about religion, I introduced myself as being of the Unitarian Universalist faith, and something inside of me felt warm and joyous. John's experience is not unique. More and more people will join us if we let them know they're welcome here, if we lift up and send out an open-hearted invitation, an open-hearted intention to become a multiracial, multicultural, and justice-making congregation. We have talked the talk of celebrating diversity for a very long time. Let us now walk the walk. People of all races and circumstances, no matter how stony the road or weary our feet, united in faith, hope, and love, into a new day. Amen, and blessed be.